But I think helping parents realize that it's okay that you're learning as you go. And as you learn, decide just one thing. You don't need to do everything. You're not going to recreate your child's eating habits overnight. Are you ready to transform the way you communicate about nutrition with your patients? Welcome to Exam Room Nutrition, the podcast where the worlds of nutrition, medicine, and communication collide. Whether you're a seasoned physician or a healthcare student, this podcast is for you. So stick around and let's make our patients healthier one exam room at a time. Hello and welcome back to the Exam Room Nutrition Podcast. I'm your host, Colleen Sloan. I'm a pediatric PA and registered dietitian. And I am so excited to have our guest returning back by popular demand. Ashley Smith is with us. She is the host of a top-ranked podcast for nutrition, the Veggies and Virtue Podcast. Ashley equips moms with the know-hows they need and hacks they crave to find freedom, flexibility, and fun when feeding their families. You can follow her at Veggies and Virtue on Instagram, and I highly recommend you tune into her podcast, the Veggies and Virtues podcast. I have learned so much from her, and I am so excited and grateful that you are back with us today, Ashley. Thank you so much for your time. I know your time is precious being a mama of littles, so I really appreciate you being with us again. Absolutely. It's a joy to get to chat again. And so the last time you were with us, we were able to define what a picky eater is, to realize when and if a referral is warranted. And also we started to discuss the importance of the division of responsibility. So making sure that we know our feeding roles as the parent and the feeding roles for the child. And so we we briefly touched on that the child should be allowed if and how much they eat. And I know when I've done this in clinic on a well check, a lot of parents give me a lot of pushback on this because it can be very scary because you are giving your child some responsibility in this area of feeding themselves. So I really want you to help us be able to navigate any of those barriers that parents might come to us when we do recommend this strategy, especially when our parent asks us, well, what do I do if my child just completely refuses to eat? So help us unbox this and unravel this difficult concept. I have had the same response from families hundreds of times where they look at you thinking, there's no way that's going to work. And I think to pause and help a family kind of reflect on, well, what are you doing now and how is it working? How has it been working? Because most of the time, by the time we're aware of a family's picky eating, it's been going on for a little while or they realize they really don't have the strategies or know-how to navigate all the nuances that are coming up with a child, their changing temperament and different things. And so I think if we can help them realize that catering to their child's food refusal and things like that isn't helping the problem get better, we can also help reassure them how boundaries and clarity in the feeding roles and responsibilities can help them get on a path where things work more smoothly and effortlessly and easily. And so for families to recognize if their child is refusing to eat. Of course, none of our objective is to have a child starve, but in most traditional households and families where food insecurity is not the issue at hand, but instead we're looking at this is just a parent feels the innate need for their child to eat, and they have fear and concern over what kind of meltdown is going to come if their child doesn't eat. And so often the way that this will happen is a parent might say, oh, I offered my child this well-balanced meal. I have some sense of 
the different food groups to offer. I feel pretty good about what I offered, but my child refuses it. They want to get up from the table almost immediately after it's been offered. I feel frustrated, defeated, deflated because I thought I did what I was supposed to do and now they're getting up. But 10 minutes later, they're coming back to say I'm hungry again. And my job is to feed my child. So do I feed them again then? Do I feed them the same thing? I mean, there's just so many nuances that create a lot of confusion. But I think if we can create some clarity around what those boundaries look like, parents kind of can mentally block a little bit of some of these roles and responsibility easier. Just a very simple, clear one-liner that they can use with their child rather than them trying to get into the intricacies of each and every day's dynamic of kind of answering every situation that may arise differently. So if we look at it in the basic sense of some of those feeding roles that we talked about in the last episode that you and I did together and looking at food refusal, a parent could simply default to a one-liner before a child gets up from the table that this is what's available. And if you as the parent know that you've offered a preferred option, I think that's really the key here. And you know that you haven't catered necessarily to them, but you have considered their food preferences then you can say, this is what's been available at XYZ meal. Our next eating opportunity won't be until whatever the next meal or snack is. If you've decided your tummy is full, you may be excused. And if you just stick to that, you're helping remind your child that they have the choice if they're going to eat and how much they're going to eat. But they don't get to choose what, when, or where that next eating opportunity is. That's not in their age-appropriate scope of understanding or independence and autonomy at this point. So if parents can stick to that and they can just practice rehearsing and role-playing that one phrase, they can circumvent a lot of the problems that happen when kids refuse a meal and we kind of get into this spiral of, well, then we let our child run into the pantry and pick their own thing and pick where they're going to eat it and when they're going to eat it 10 minutes later and we're having done dishes and it just becomes a very slippery slope. But the more that we can reinforce those clear boundaries in that feeding relationship, the less food refusal and issues around that that I tend to see. And that's a great one line that we can provide to our parents during that well check is just letting the patient know, okay, this is lunch. Are you sure your tummy is full? The next time the meal will be in such and such hours. That at least lets them know there will be something in the future. But if you're done, then you're finished for now. How would you recommend for parents to deal with if their child comes back to them in 10 minutes, 20 minutes, maybe 30 minutes. I'm hungry. I need a snack. Do they need to stay firm to what they had said that, you know, the next snack or the next lunch isn't until 12 o'clock? Or is it okay to maybe give them something because we're really concerned that they're hungry and they're not going to grow? Yes. So a great question. And I think really when we look at the division of responsibility and what the research shows, we want to be tuning into, it is a responsive feeding approach. So there isn't black and white, right answer one way for all children. We need to tune in to our parent intuition. We need to know our child and the situation and the day and the dynamics that are at play to tune into, is this a time that, okay, I can I can make an exception and I can kind of ebb and flow the, the boundaries on when food will be made available. However, if this is new to your family and you know you don't have these regular routine eating opportunities established, sometimes more clear, firm boundaries can be more helpful to get you to a place of flexibility and freedom moving forward. So in my family, for example, my kids have been born and raised with this. So now I feel a little bit more comfortable knowing when there's some flexibility to adapt these eating opportunities 
around what we have going on, kind of the spontaneous things that happen and things like that. But it's because we have that structure in place that the boundaries do have a little bit more wiggle room. But if a family is just setting up a routine, we're often almost intimidated by our child's reaction. And we're unsure when, if we can be consistent, and we're especially unsure if we can be consistent in the face of opposition, even from a small little body in front of us. And so parents are concerned that if my child pushes back, can I put my foot down? If my child throws a fit, am I confident enough in what I am saying that I'm going to stick to it? So they need to know that not only is this what the research indicates is best practice approach, but it's also going to help move them forward. You know, you look at a lot of areas of discipline and behavior management in kids, and kids thrive with boundaries. They strive when there's routine in place and there's consistency offered in our parenting approaches. And so if we can apply that to the feeding dynamic as well, parents will see that that pushback, those tantrums, those struggles are very, very short-lived. I work with clients each and every day. And within a couple of weeks, the routine and the regular eating opportunity becomes so normative that a lot of the pushback and the power struggles are non-existent. And then we can make progress towards adding variety or incorporating new foods or learning to like things and all the other goals that families often have. But we have to get that clear, firm foundation in place first, where we have those clear, consistent boundaries around this is what's being offered. This is when it's offered. This is where you're expected to eat or to stay until a meal is over. And then once the child knows my parent is confident in this, they are willing to stick to this approach. I can find comfort and security in that. I don't need to be pushing it anymore to see, is this boundary going to stand strong? Are they really even convinced in what they're trying to convince me on? And so I think it's the wrestling with ourselves to say, do we believe what we're sticking to? And can I stick to it enough to see it through? And then on the other side, I get to experience the gains and the positive that come from that. Now, what happens if not only the child is refusing what you offered and they say, no, I don't like that. It's yucky. No, but their refusal is more physical. So they're throwing the food or throwing the plate, or you've got that toddler who just won't sit still. You know, they're not in high chairs anymore and they won't sit at the table. What practical advice can the clinician provide the parent to help tackle those issues? I think the core concept to come back to is start small. So if it's a food throwing situation, I would encourage the parent to offer one pea, one noodle, one piece of chicken, because it's just not that much fun to throw three pieces of food. If you have a whole plate and you get a really, you know, lot of food flying and a really large reaction from your parents, it's a much more, you know, eccentric event. But if it's just, these are the three things. And when you show me that you have behaved appropriately with these, it doesn't necessarily mean eating them, but just exploring them and behaving, then you're welcome to have more when you're ready. And so starting small in that capacity, but I think also starting small in our time expectations. If we have a toddler who we know is really wiggly and struggle to eat at the table, well, if we're sitting there for 30 minutes, it's kind of like offering the full plate to an infant who we know who th- is going to throw the plate. And so instead we may want to say, well, we're going to start at two minutes and we're going to just give positive reinforcement and reminders. We may give visual cues with a timer on the microwave or that little timer that you use from the dentist. And we're going to set a visual cue that we're going to sit here for this amount of time. And once they've done that, maybe you incrementally increase, but you're starting small. You're starting with the wins. You're starting with, show me you can be successful with three items on your plate. Show me that you can be successful with two minutes of sitting. Let's celebrate this. Let's acknowledge your great behavior, your willingness to participate in the meal and all these ways that are really positive. 
because that's feeding into that feeding environment and the tone of everyone at the table rather than instigating an agitation or irritation that oh, they're throwing your plate again or they're getting up again and we're wrestling them to come back to the table. And just some of those things that, again, can become a really slippery slope and a negative perpetual cycle. So I think if we can remind parents, start small, find your smallest win, the thing that you can be successful, and then build off of that. Because oftentimes, once the child knows that they're not getting the reaction or response that they are kind of seeking or craving, the behavior does go away. And as kids do, a new behavior might come, but I think we can always come back to that simple principle of starting small, starting with where we know we can be successful and then building off of that. That's such a great point. Now let's talk a little bit about grazing or snacking throughout the day because kids love snacks, right? And I hear them sometimes say, no, I don't want lunch. I want a snack. So a couple of things, how impactful is having a snack throughout the day how does that impact how much or if the child eats? Should parents be offering snacks? Give us a little details about, you know, just about snacks in general. Absolutely. So I think I probably spend more time talking about snacks than anything else, especially in my podcast, because it is the thing that parents have the most questions with. And the question that you ask is a struggle that most parents see. And so we want to look at some of the areas that make snacks more appealing to our kids than meals, because a lot of times as parents will say, the meals we're offering are good or are well-balanced or are offering the different food groups, but they only want the snacks. Well, we have to remember that if we're offering snack foods just as snack foods and mealtime foods just as mealtime foods, our kids already have a very clear distinction of what's a snack and what's a meal. So if they like snack foods, chances are, even if you just start taking the snack food and putting it on their plate at a meal and taking that meal food and offering it as snack, you're just automatically setting a more neutral playing field that snacks can be at meals and meals can be at snacks. So this might be a simple example of, we'll say goldfish crackers because it's such a just obvious one with the pediatric population. But if goldfish crackers are only offered in the little self-serve packages at snack time and they never see them any other time, well, they might have a propensity to favor goldfish. Well, we look at goldfish. They are the exact same item. Every single one looks the exact same. It's highly predictable. So if a child has any inclination or lean towards picky eating tendencies, there's a lot of safety and security in knowing every goldfish looks the same. But then there's also this novelty factor of they get a crinkly bag and it has a cute little fish on it. And, you know, it's just, it feels kind of independent. And there's so much intrigue to a child there that if we took that same individual serve package of goldfish crackers, and put, let's say, even just half of it on a kid's plate, divided plate, however you're plating lunch, and put it next to their peanut butter and jelly and apple slices. Well, now all of a sudden we've said, this can be a mealtime food too. And now when they want goldfish at snack, we'll say, oh, we've already had goldfish crackers today. Let's pick something else. And now we're maybe picking something that would have been a breakfast, lunch, dinner food and say, we're going to have broccoli with ranch and a yogurt tube. You know, we're translating these foods across the different meal and eating opportunities. And I think that that can be something really helpful for families to do that doesn't take a lot of effort or mental gymnastics to come up with, but simply it's removing from the package, offering the snacks as meals and the meals as snacks can help kind of decrease some of that perception that my child only likes snack foods. That is extremely helpful because you can see how children can compartmentalize foods as snacks and the foods as meals. 
And I also think we make snack time sort of more fun than a meal. So of course, snacks are fun because sometimes you go and throw a picnic blanket outside and a meal is just mundane and boring and a task that they have to do. I want to piggyback this snack discussion on how can we help our parents add some variety to a picky eater's diet. I love that we're going to now try to have the snack food as part of the mealtime and a mealtime food maybe as a snack. That's a great way to start to add variety. But what else can we suggest our parents to do as they're just starting out? Absolutely. So it's a great question because even as I give the examples, the peanut butter and jelly goldfish and apples at lunch or the broccoli and ranch and yogurt tube at snack, oftentimes the rebuttal question from parents will be, well, my kid won't eat those things. They'll just only eat the goldfish crackers if that's what I offer at lunch, or they'll only eat the yogurt tube at snack. And so a framework that I find very helpful and effective for families is what I call my love it, like it, learning it framework. And any clinician could spell this out very quickly and easily to their clients. You simply make a T-graph and you list out what are the foods that your child loves. Those are their preferred foods. Those are often what we refer to as kind of their safe foods. Those are the easy wins that you know they're likely going to eat. The learning it foods are those that you probably want them to learn to like, but they're not yet eating. You may have never exposed it to them, or you may have exposed them to it 100 times and they're still not eating it, but it's a food they're still learning to like. I try and reframe family's language that it's not, I don't like it. I'm just still learning to like it. And that can happen over the lifespan in varying ways. But I think for families to see when we are trying to incorporate more variety, we need to always be sensitive to the fact that we need to be offering a preferred food. There needs to be love at foods made available because that reinforces their safety, their security, that this isn't you know us trying to pressure or enter into a power struggle with our child by us being in charge of what is offered. But also... We want to expose them to new foods. We want to incorporate new variety. And so as we bring in some of those learning it foods, as we make them commonplace in their diet at meals, it may be that the apple slices are the learning it food at that lunch suggestion I mentioned, or that the broccoli and cauliflower is a learning it food at snack. But because we're learning to incorporate preferred and non-preferred foods, and kind of that like it food is uh, kind of what I'd say is the middle of the T-graph, the ones that could go one way or another, depending on the child's temperament for the day or kind of how they're feeling towards that food, we can very quickly see how do we expose our kids to new foods, but how do we also offer them the fuel that they need to, often it boils down to survive, but also just to feel fueled for mealtimes to not be a fight, for them to come to the table and be reassured there's something that they want to eat. So that helps us perpetuate that structure and routine but it also helps get them on board that there's something here I like and there's something here I they're going to say don't like, but we can say there's something that you're learning to like. But then parents can start to see, I can help my child learn to like new foods without needing to pressure, force, bribe, or engage in you know some of these counterproductive parent feeding approaches. But if they can very simply just see, is there something that they love? Is there something that, you know, yeah, they may or may not eat it. They like it. And that there's something learning to like. That's one of the easiest ways to kind of find obvious variety to add to any given meal because it's those foods that you probably already have in your home. Families don't want to go to the grocery store and feel like they have to buy a whole new list of things in order to incorporate variety. They want to see, hey, we always have broccoli at home anyways. We can easily incorporate this into a meal or a snack. And just like the advice I mentioned before, start small. We're not giving them a ton of broccoli. We're assuming the amount a Lego man would eat. Well, this is about how much I expect that they may want to explore the first few introductions. 
So let's start small. Let's just start exposing them to some of this variety and helping them learn to like it so that over time they do, you know, expand the number of foods that they are willing to eat. I love that visual of the three different sections that we can put our foods in. And, you know, we know that learning to like a food is a process too. It's not just a matter of, oh, I'm tasting it, I tried it, right? You know, they've got to touch it and smell it and feel it and interact with it. So that can absolutely be a discussion we can save for another time because I'm sure this could be a helpful avenue for clinicians to discuss with their patients further. And okay, how do I get my child to even learn to like a food and to try a food? But I want you to leave us with some thoughts on when we're dealing with a parent who feels very guilty for maybe creating a picky eater and and just feeling like they've probably done things wrong in the past. And, you know, maybe they feel like they're to blame. What can we say to them to offer them hope, offer them encouragement And so they don't have to carry any guilt or shame. Yeah, I think the biggest thing here is parents often want to, they're going to come asking for ideas because they want answers. They deep down feel this wrestling that deep down, I feel like I've done this to my child or at some time I missed the window that I was supposed to do something different and I didn't know different. So I think helping them understand that that is parenting. I mean, so often we don't even know what we don't know until we know it. And by that point, we probably needed to know it a few years ago. And so I think for parents to know that we're all doing the best that we can with the information that we have at the time, but the more that you gain information and understanding, the more tools you have in your parenting tool belt to do something with it. So as clinicians, as we help provide resources and credible information to our patients, we can say, now take this and put it into practice. What is the next thing you can do? Don't go out on Pinterest, Instagram, Google, on all the places that are going to add to the overwhelm. They're going to, you know, add to the comparison and the concept that you're not doing enough or that you have failed or whatever it might be. But instead, help them walk away with what is one thing you feel like you can do today based off what we've talked about. Don't go ask, you know, your friend, your grandma or the internet, but let's just say right here from what we've talked about, what is one thing that stuck with you that you feel like you could do? Because if they're feeling really down and defeated, just making one behavior change. I mean, we all know behavior change is a process. And so for them to identify and to own and to have someone that they feel comfortable and accountable with that they can say, you know, I could I could make a love it like it learning it list. And I could just even list out the foods that my child's willing to eat. So I at least have a clear starting place of how to pick and match different options. And I could start doing that. Or they might say, you know what, I could I could set up a mealtime structure. And I could set up some semblance of routine for regular eating opportunities. And I can start working towards being consistent with when it's time to eat or the kitchen is closed. But I think helping parents realize that it's okay that you're learning as you go. And as you learn, decide just one thing. You don't need to do everything. You're not going to recreate your child's eating habits overnight, just like wherever they're at right now didn't happen overnight. It's also going to take days and weeks and months and years. And thankfully we have lots of time to feed our kids and all that in all that time span that we can continue to practice it, but to help them to commit to, you know, what is that one next thing that you feel is within your ability, you know, physically, mentally, emotionally, that you can kind of stick to and move forward with. You are truly the expert. Oh, I have gleaned so much from our conversation and I hope our listeners have as well. There are so many practical tools and strategies that you've provided us with to help our families navigate their picky eater. 
So Ashley, thank you again so much for your time. I cannot give you this time back. So we are forever grateful for your expertise and your advice today. Thanks so much for being here, Ashley. Thank you so much for having me. Before we move on to my nutrition notes segment, I wanted to let you know that we have partnered with Patricia Skolnick Nutrition for all things gut health. Patricia is a registered dietitian specializing in GI disorders, and she's currently accepting new clients. Refer your patients to her website at www.patriciaskolnicknutrition.com. If you use code examroomnutrition at checkout, you'll get 10% off any of her products available. You can also join Patricia virtually on August 24th for the Banish Your Bloat Masterclass, where you'll hear all about how to live bloat-free based on what is happening within your gut. And if you're looking for a more comprehensive answer to improving your GI symptoms, the Digestive Health Back to Basics program is open for enrollment. This is a six-week hybrid virtual group program to get you started on your digestive health journey. This program has limited spots and gets started at the week of September 4th. Don't forget to use code examroomnutrition at checkout to receive 10% off all of her programs. All right, guys, now it's time for my nutrition notes. In this section, I'll provide you with a nutrition tip, an interesting quote, or a case that I think might add value to your day. So today I will leave you with a nutrition tip that goes right along with what Ashley was discussing in regards to her like it, learning to like it, and loving it concept. As you know, I'm a pediatric PA, so I love to have fun, whether it be in the clinic with my patients or at home feeding my own family. So a tip that I suggest when trying to feed kind of a selective eater or a child who just has no interest in in foods is purchase an ice tray, those old school ice trays with 12 different sections, and use that as their plate for the day. You can deconstruct a meal and kind of put a few little bites of different foods in there for them to try. So for example, you could put a little bit of ground beef in one section, a few beans in the other section, a little tablespoon of rice in the other section, and you kind of have a deconstructed taco right there. On the top section, you could put maybe a cut up hard boiled egg. You could put a few pieces of corn or a few crackers that you know that the child already likes. You could put a few blueberries or some cut up banana for a few pieces of fruit. The possibilities are endless with this and children love it because it's something different than their boring load plate and they get to eat with their fingers. I hope this information was helpful to you and that you learned some new information that you can incorporate into your busy day to help you have more impactful nutrition discussions. Please like and subscribe to my channel and follow me on Instagram at exam room nutrition. I would love to hear your comments. And if you have any difficult nutrition questions that you would like us to tackle with our experts, I would love to hear from you. Well, until next time, guys, Let's continue to make our patients healthier, one exam room at a time.